Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey, Food Junkies listeners, Clarissa here, and have we got a podcast for you. Today, our guest is the fabulous Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. Dr. Barrett is among the top 1% of most cited scientists in the world for her revolutionary research in psychology and neuroscience. She is a university distinguished professor of psychology at Northeastern University. She also holds appointments at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital, where she is the chief science officer for the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior. In addition to the books, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain and How Emotions Are Made, Dr. Barrett has published over 275 peer-reviewed scientific papers, appearing in Science, Nature, Neuroscience, and other top journals in Psychology and Cognitive Neuroscience, as well as six academic volumes published by Guilford Press. She writes regularly about science in the popular press, including New York Times, Guardian, Scientific American, BBC Science, Focus, and Time Magazine. She also has a popular TED Talk, which we've linked in her bio, that has been viewed over six and a half million times. Dr. Barrett received a National Institutes of Health Directors Pioneer Award for her revolutionary research on emotion in the brain. These are highly competitive, multi-million dollar awards that are given only to scientists of exceptional creativity who are expected to transform biomedical and behavioral research. Among her many accomplishments, Dr. Barrett has testified before conference, presented her research to the FBI, consulted to the National Cancer Institute, and been a featured guest on public television and podcasts worldwide. She recently did a two-hour podcast with Andrew Huberman, which is definitely worth checking out. She was president of the Association for Psychological Science in 2019 to 2020 and co-founded the Society for Effective Science. She is also an elected fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the Royal Society of Canada. This is a fabulous episode. We're so interested in your feedback. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Lisa, so much for being here. We really love our audience to get to know our guests so that they can connect with them. So would you mind sharing kind of your personal and professional story about how you became the person who would teach the world how emotions are really made? And were there any aha moments along the way? Oh, for sure. There are always aha moments. And it's always really interesting to hear scientists tell you about their aha moments, like, you know, as if they were, you know, there was a a moment of epiphany when everything made sense. I don't have one of those. What I have more is a series of like really confusing moments where I had to think a lot and learn a whole bunch of new stuff to try to sort of sort things out. So for me, it's been a 30 year journey really. And I guess what I would say is that probably there are two things that make me sort of suited to this sort of journey, or maybe that led me into this journey. And one is that I'm really, really curious, maybe too curious, you know, like sometimes curiosity kills the cat, right? So maybe a little too curious sometimes, but I kind of don't take other people's word for it, I guess is like, you know, it never worked for me when my parents would say, because I told you so, like, that's just never going to work. And it doesn't work when very famous scientists tell me that either. (laughs) So I'm really data driven, I guess. Usually I don't want people to tell me that they think I'm right. If they think I'm wrong, I want them to tell me why. And I want them to give me evidence that I can go look at, read myself, you know? So I think that's one thing. And I think the other is that I actually have come to the conclusion that I probably approach science the way you approach your clients, meaning that I learned, I was very, very fortunate to be trained as a clinician at a time when there was like hour for hour supervision. So for every hour that I saw a client, I had to sit for at least an hour 
with a supervisor going out nitpicking every tiny little thing I said and what the reactions were of the client. But what I learned from that was really invaluable. I'm very grateful for those experiences as painful as they were. But what I learned is that oftentimes people lie to themselves in your presence, right? They're not really lying to you. They're lying to themselves. And for me, what happened was that when I was a graduate student training to be a clinician, and I actually thought I would be a clinician. I actually thought I would be a therapist. That was my goal, not to be a scientist, really. I was doing research for my PhD, and I noticed that measures of emotion weren't performing the way they were supposed to. I wasn't that interested in emotion. I was interested in something else, but the measures weren't performing the way that I expected them to. And so I thought, well, okay, you know, I'm just going to fix this. I'll find a different way of measuring emotions. It'll be really simple, of course, because, you know, there are universal facial expressions for anger, sadness, fear, and so on. You know, there are these universal changes in the body, you know, so I just figured, oh, it's easy. It should be easy. Well, you know, and so here we are 30 years later, but here's what I noticed. I noticed that I would go to the literature and I would read the introduction of a paper and I'd read the discussion section of the paper and it would say the same thing as the stuff that I had learned in textbooks. But then I'd look at the results and I'd realize, just a second, it doesn't quite fit to me. And what I concluded after reading many, 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 many papers and actually trying to do some of my own experiments was that the field was kind of telling itself a story that didn't really match the data. And in fact, I think I've confirmed that now because, you know, a couple of years ago, five senior scientists got together me and four other senior scientists. So each of us has our own, you know, we're principal investigators of our own labs. We all have our own research programs. We're all very well known. We're, you know, we didn't know each other necessarily. And we all come from kind of different fields, but we all study emotion. And we all started with different assumptions, different hypotheses about facial expressions and whether or not they were universal expressions of emotion, whether facial, there are facial movements that universally express and are recognized as emotion. And we read a thousand papers and we actually believed we would not come to consensus because nobody has come to consensus on this question for more than a century. But to our surprise, we actually did come to consensus. And these, and I call, you know, I was the lead author and there were four other guys and I call them affectionately the boys, you know, because they were four guys. And it's very unusual for a woman to lead a project where four extremely senior men listen to her, what she says. <laughs> but these guys were great. And, you know, we just agreed that it didn't really matter who was right. And what mattered was that we understood what the evidence had to say. And we kind of cheered each other on when someone had to admit they were wrong about something, right? Because that's science. And we all came to the same conclusion that, you know, it's a stereotype to say that there are these universal facial expressions. There aren't universal. I mean, people express emotion with lots of different movements, right? So they'll express anger, you know, they scowl in anger in Western cultures and in Eastern cultures that are, have exposure to Western cultures, people scowl when they're angry more than chance, about 35% of the time. That means 65% of the time they're doing something else with their face. That's meaningful to express anger. And about half the time when people scowl, they're not angry. They're expressing something else. And it's also the case that not all facial movements are facial expressions. Sometimes they're just movements. You know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, right? And so you're not reading emotion in people, you're guessing based on a lifetime of learning in your culture. So these are just some of the, you know, conclusions that we came to after reading, you know, literally more than a thousand papers. And I guess my point here is that when scientists, regardless of their beliefs, their priors, when they confront the mountains of evidence, they come to the conclusion that there's something much more interesting going on here than just, you know, there are these programs that are pre-wired into, you know, our brains or whatever. That's just, that's a fiction. That's just not how it works. And so it's incumbent upon us to figure out how it does work. So let's just dive right in here. Let's talk about what you guys 
found or discovered what the more interesting thing was, which I think we're going to get to at some point. Can you tell us how emotions are made if they aren't just simply triggered reactions? If there is no universal expression for these, you know, for happy, mad, sad, angry, whatever, can you kind of explain where they come from? Well, I can explain to the best of my current knowledge, right? So, I mean, everything in science is provisional. And I think this is important for everyone to know, right? So what I'm about to say is probably more right than the idea that you've got these circuits that just get triggered and, you know, but hopefully science will progress and there'll be revisions and, you know, we'll understand more and more. So what I'm gonna tell you is my best understanding based on the evidence that exists currently today, okay? So that's my caveat in all of this. But very little of what you experience in life is a triggered reaction. So it feels that way to us. It feels that way to me. I have a better understanding of how the brain works than I did 20 years ago, and it still feels that way to me. But if there's one thing to know about your brain is that it is a master of deception. It doesn't reveal how it works by just looking at its products, right? So to us, it feels like shit happens in the world. We react to it. And then those reactions, you know, they can feel bad. They can feel good. They can get us into trouble. They can, you know, that's not really what's happening, right? What's really happening is that your brain is predicting. And that means your brain is literally starting to prepare your actions and your experience in advance as a guess of what's gonna happen in a moment from now. So if we were to stop time right now, your brain is asking itself, figuratively speaking, the last time I was in this state where I saw and heard these things and felt these things, right? What happened next? And it's literally remembering. I mean, you don't have the experience of remembering, but it's like reinstating or reassembling signal patterns to prepare for what it expects is going to happen in a minute from now. And these prediction signals are a re-establishment of the past. So who you are in a moment from now is very much determined by everything you've experienced up to that point. Sometimes scientists will say, when they're describing how the brain predicts, they'll say the brain runs a model of the world. Your brain is running a model of the world. Your brain has wired itself to the world, but your brain doesn't really run a model of the world. It runs a model of its own body, of the sensory surfaces of your body. So the signals that hit your retina, the signals that hit your cochlea, the signals that come from inside your body. Your brain is running a model of your body. It's wired itself to its surroundings, which it only knows through the sensory surfaces of your body. And it's, you know, little brains, I like to say, I have another book, Seven and a Half Lessons about the brain. And in that book, I talk about, you know, how babies' brains are not miniature adult brains. They're brains that are waiting for a set of wiring instructions to finish themselves. And where do those wiring instructions come from? They come from the baby's own body based on the environment, the world that we have created for those infants. And that's the model essentially that is wired into the brain that allows the brain to predict. So what's happened to you in the past, how you've experienced things in the past, what you've done in the past are your priors, your brain's hypotheses that it samples from to predict in any moment going forward. And if you understand that, and you understand how that works, generally speaking, that's really powerful knowledge in order if you want to change who you're going to be in the future. So then with that in mind, can we run through a scenario of, you know, an instance of emotion? And obviously I've listened to all your podcasts and read your book and know that it makes sense that, you know, when I'm physiologically feeling a certain way, at some point, that reality was presented to me by my parents as you're sad. So even if we pick sadness, right? So can you explain how like an instance of sadness actually happens and then maybe how it can relate to our thoughts, feelings, and decisions? Sure. 
So in the present moment, your brain, if we were to stop time, your brain would basically, it has some representation of the current state of your body and the current state of the world based on what just, whatever just transpired. Now it's going to predict what's going to happen next. Well, let's say that you are metabolically depleted. Okay. Let's say you didn't sleep very well last night, or you haven't had enough water to drink today. You're a little dehydrated, or you've been eating pseudo food, you know, like potato chips or, you know, snack foods or whatever, you know, not healthful food. Okay. So for whatever reason, or it could be that you have, um, you know, a metabolic problem in your body could be that you have some mitochondrial problem, or it could be that, you know, you are chronically stressed, which means all stress is stress means that the brain is predicting that, that there needs to be a big metabolic outlay. You have to do something that's going to cost a lot, learn something, deal with uncertainty, move your body in some way. And the brain is preparing for that. Okay. That's stress basically. And if that happens a lot to you, that's chronic stress, right? So if you live in an environment full of uncertainty, that's stressful because uncertainty is metabolically expensive. So you're just draining basically your metabolic budget constantly. And then you have to try to constantly replenish it. And there's only so much you can do. Whatever the reason is, you're low, you're low on fuel. Okay. Now the brain's going to ask itself, okay, well, the last time I was in a situation like this, what did I do next? What did I see next? What did I feel next? Now, in our culture, when someone is tired, when someone is feels overwhelmed, like they can't, you know, they cry or they curl up in a ball or they just lie down and pull a blanket over their head or there's just too much going on for them to metabolically manage. We call that sadness. And for little kids, we sometimes will label things for them, like in a storybook. Oh, Bobby is feeling sad. Oh, Susie is, look, Susie's, oh, Susie's feeling sad. Or, oh, sweetie, don't feel sad. You know, we sort of say words and words are invitations to learn categories so that we can say, okay, this belongs to the category sadness. And so this is what sadness looks like. This is what sadness feels like. So the next time you feel this way, or you see something that's similar, you know, your brain will be sampling instances, past instances of sadness to make the current instance into sadness, okay? To prepare an instance of sadness, to predict it. But we also learn without being supervised with words. Like we learn from movies and we learn from books and we learn from, you know, now social media. We learn learn in all kinds of places about what sadness is. And so... One possibility is that your brain is conjuring and it's preparing an instance of sadness because that's what happens. That's one way to make sense predictively of low, you know, glucose levels, let's say, that which which are associated with fatigue. But there are others, right? Like the today. I woke up this morning and I really felt exhausted. Like I wasn't even out of bed yet. I'm sure people have this experience, you know, where you wake up and you're like, you're not even, your foot isn't even on the floor. And you're like, I just cannot even open. I just cannot drag my ass out of bed this morning. You know, even now, right? Even now, the first thing my brain conjures is I'm so, I'm just, is this depression? I'm feeling like everything is wrong in my life. You know, I'm just feeling, I'm not, being facetious. I mean, like, there's that feeling of like, the world is crushing in on you. There are 150 things that you would like to be different. It's going to be a very long, stressful day. But I catch myself and I say, ah, this is going to be a challenging body budgeting day. This is going to be a day where my brain is going to have a lot of trouble keeping my metabolic budget balanced. So I'm going to have to do extra things today to make sure that I'm not miserable. Because when you feel miserable, it's easy to look around at the world and see all the things that are different from the way you want them to be, which just feeds your next set of predictions. Like what you focus on feeds your next set of predictions and then poof, you're like down this trajectory, you know? But instead, what I did was I made sure that I had a healthful breakfast. Plus, I also had a treat, you know, because I just felt like I needed it. 
So I had a little bit of toast with peanut butter, which is, you know, it's like in addition to my healthful breakfast. It was like, I just need to treat myself here because I just, that's like one of my favorite things to have for breakfast. And I made sure that I got up out of my chair every hour for five minutes to walk around, to go outside. I made sure that, so I just make sure that I'm really hydrated, you know, so I've got like hydration. I walk, you know, yeah. So, but I was doing things, you know, texting people occasionally like, Hey, I'm just, you know, I started baking bread for my neighbor because I, that's one of the things I do when I'm not feeling so great. I like bake something for someone down, you know, down the street. You probably have your own menu over the things that you do and you can help your clients come up with their own, you know, tasting menu of things that they do. But the point is that I'm not going to let myself to let my sort of metabolic budget dip beyond where it is. Because if I do, that is the road to depression. That is the road to a depressive episode. And I don't want to go there, right? And I'm just, what I'm trying to say here is that the immediacy of the feeling, like I grew up in the same culture as you, as probably most of many of your clients. And so I also learned what sadness is and what depression is. And those are my go-to, right? When I'm really jittery and things are really uncertain, my go-to story prediction is anxiety. But anxiety is a recipe, it's a prescription for avoiding things. And in uncertainty, often what you need to do is forage for information. <laughs> it's to search for information to help reduce the uncertainty. That means that conjuring an episode of anxiety is not helpful. And so this is hard stuff, okay? It's hard stuff, but it's stuff you can practice that you have to understand that your brain is constantly guessing. It's using past experience to guess. And those guesses are not just like, you know, abstract thoughts. Those guesses are your brain is changing the control of your body. It's gonna speed up your heart, slow down your heart, change your breathing. It's preparing skeletal motor movements or to not move. And those give rise to the features of your experience. So predictions are real neural signals that are preparing your experience that will occur in a moment from now. And you can, with practice, retrain yourself to predict differently, just like any skill that you have. You can build a skill. It's hard at first. It's always harder. You know, it's always harder than you want it to be. But everybody has a little bit more control than they think they do. It's just you need to prepare in advance by practicing. And then it's not as hard to take control in the moments that you need to. Hey, Food Junkies listeners. We're just going to take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again for listening. In honor of the giving holiday season, Sweet Sobriety wanted to share our upcoming free 12-week foundations module workshop starting Fridays, January 5th at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, hosted by Molly Painshop. Each session will be an hour and a half and you will get professional coaching around all the module topics, including understanding ultra-processed food addiction and mindful eating, abstinence and withdrawal, craving and recovery management, cross-addiction, hope and resilience, distress intolerance, addressing thoughts and feelings, stress management, emotional eating, building self-compassion, moving toward body neutrality, and spirituality. There are multiple videos, exercise, downloads, and personal writing reflections for each module. We walk you through the topics in the order they usually show up when we are treating food addiction with private clients we work with. We've jam-packed every module with the most current evidence-based best practices and the latest scientific information we have found in the field of food addiction and eating disorders. This workshop will be free of charge to anyone who purchases or has purchased our foundations modules, which are based on our treatment audit paper published in Frontiers in Psychiatry. When you purchase the modules for $200 US, going up to 300 in the new year, you will have automatic access to them and we'll receive a Zoom link in January inviting you to our free workshop. If you miss the group or are working at that time, we will be recording them so you'll have access to them forever. This workshop includes 
lifetime access to the foundation's modules, all future updates, and lifetime access to the workshop recordings for members who purchase the modules. Also, we wanted to let you know that we have now posted the Saturday speakers from our Sweet Sobriety Meetup for anyone who was unable to attend the event. These can be found on www.sweetsobriety.ca under courses and are $10 for each individual speaker or $30 for the whole package of five speakers of the day. These speakers are Sandra Elia, Dr. Evelyn Roy, Sophie Rowland, Dr. Vera Tarman, and Dr. Amy Reichelt. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners. And we definitely want to talk to you more about how we can shift those predictions. But before we go there, as you were explaining, you know, I started kind of putting some things together. So please correct me if I'm Mm -hmm. piecing this puzzle together all wrong. Mm -hmm. So we work, Clarissa and I specifically work at the intersection of disordered eating and addiction. And we, you know, right, so there's a lot of research, whether or not the literature is correct or not, that, you know, adverse childhood experiences, trauma often plays into disordered eating, addiction, shame, all of those things. And then those individuals with the addiction, right, that they have higher instances of binge eating disorder, bulimia nervosa, anorexia nervosa, whatever it might be. So am I correct in putting this together that, because of the chaos that these individuals maybe lived in, like the soup that their developing brain was waiting for the programming was chaotic. And if it's metabolically depleting or their body needs to budget in another way, is that potentially an explanation for the disordered eating? Oh, for sure. So here's the thing. There are a couple of things to understand. First of all, little brains really do wire themselves to their world. What I mean by that is they wire themselves to their physical body, but also the world that's curated for them. And in an optimal situation, parents and caregivers constrain the world for their infant. And they are, they're sampling the signals that are relevant and that are irrelevant. And they do that by keeping the environment fairly constrained. So, you know, really they, teach the child when to sleep and when to eat and when to, you know, and they teach the child which signals are relevant and which are irrelevant, right? So if a siren goes by and I turn and look to the siren, my baby will turn and look to the siren, right? And if I ignore it, the baby will ignore it, right? So really what you're teaching your children unbeknownst to you is, is this signal or is this noise? Can you ignore this or do you have to pay attention to this? Now, let's say for whatever reason, that doesn't happen. So everything is potentially signal. That's bad. And it's bad because it's way too expensive. So metabolically, that's a disaster. Like it's just, it's really a drag, okay? And it's even worse. And I'm not talking about blame here, right? I mean, a lot of parents, you know, one of the tricky things about parenting is knowing when to step in and when to step back. And all of us get it wrong sometimes, like, you know, no matter what we do, right? But in general, some kids grow up in a world that is slowly expanding at the rate that their nervous system can tolerate it. And for some kids, it's like a balloon. It just blows up and it's big. And so in those circumstances, a brain will attempt to find patterns itself or even create those patterns in order to structure things. This is not a bad thing to do. It's an adaptive response. So one of the things to understand is that some of the behaviors that we have that are most, I don't want to say maladaptive, but that cause us the most pain and difficulty actually arise from fairly typical things that a nervous system will do, right? So it's just the normative thing that a nervous system does. So for example, right before this, I was having a conversation about chronic pain and I was saying, every experience you have, you have in your brain. You don't see in your eye, you see in your brain. I mean, you need your eyes, but you see in your brain. You don't feel in your body. Your body feels nothing. You feel in your brain. You're experiencing it as if it's in your body, but what it, it's actually happening in your brain. So if your brain is predicting and it's starting to create your experience 
And then it waits for the sense data to sensory signals to come from the sensory surfaces of your body to confirm those predictions or change them. Then what chronic pain is really where your brain is predicting there's going to be pain. It's expecting there to be sensory signals coming that indicate tissue damage somewhere in the body, but those signals never come and the brain decides to just go with its prediction. And so you experience pain. Chronic pain is real pain. I mean, you really feel it. It's real. It's just as real as any other kind of pain. And it results from a normal process in your brain. The difference is that your brain didn't shut down the prediction, didn't change it when the you know, no susceptive signals when the signals about tissue damage didn't arise. For some reason, the brain isn't updating its model. It's not updating its prediction. And so I would say the same thing, really. I would see, you know, I'm not an eating disorders expert, okay? But I would say my starting hypothesis based on what I know would be a couple of things. One is that brains that are where the world is not constrained for you, where the world where isn't, there aren't other people teaching you what is signal and what is noise, your brain is going to figure out, it's going to come up with a set of rules, probably by accident even, that will structure things for you. That's a little Cartesian in the way I'm saying, but the brain's going to attempt to structure itself. And it's going to attempt to figure out, to make guesses. And sometimes those guesses won't necessarily be the best ones, but they're the best ones that the brain can achieve, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is unbridled uncertainty is expensive. And when your brain is believes that there's a budgeting problem in your body, you will experience fatigue. And it's very easy for fatigue to become hunger. So I'm not saying that fatigue is confused with hunger. I'm saying that the signals that are coming from your body are that there is a metabolic depletion somewhere. And that metabolic depletion, you will experience, you could experience it as hunger or you could experience it as fatigue. But the thing is that when you feel tired, sometimes you experience that fatigue as hunger. Because in the past, when you've eaten something, you're less tired afterwards. So sometimes, you know, when you, you know, you go to the kitchen, you're looking for a snack take a minute, do a body scan, ask yourself, like, are you actually hungry? Do you actually need to eat or are you tired? So maybe it's the case that people eat to, you know, because, you know, eating is like a drug, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe it is about, you know, soothing yourself. But I think a lot of the time people are eating because they're attempting to get rid of this dragged out, horrible feeling where they're just, you know, they feel like it's very unpleasant and they feel like they can't move very easily. You know, like they feel super lethargic. They feel really, really kind of miserable and tired. So I think part of the issue is a brain attempting to provide structure for itself and maybe coming up with less than optimal habits for doing so. And I think part of it is how we learn to make sense of the signals from our bodies and the world come from other people. And if the people around us don't, you know, if we don't inherit those meanings and they're not wired into our brains, then we'll use the ones that are. And those are two, I'm not saying that's the whole story, but I think that's part of the story. That would be my guess. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense, I believe, in terms of some of the emotional eating research that we've read, where it's like you experience this physiological arousal, you don't know how to interpret it. So everything gets interpreted as hunger. And from what you're saying, you know, in that state of constant stress, or we may refer to it as hypervigilance, is very metabolically expensive that, yeah, that fatigue, we're going to be searching for something to make that fatigue less. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that, you know, that makes sense that food would do that for us. Mm -hmm. So before you were mentioning about you know, being able to change our predictions. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that, just in terms of if our brain is writing a story Mm -hmm. and making predictions about what's going to happen, how do we train our brain to make different predictions? Training your brain to make different predictions is like learning any skill. Practice, 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 practice. You know, at first things are hard. They take a lot of energy. So it's kind of like, you know, investing energy now for a, you know, healthier, better you later. 
sort of like exercising, right? Who the hell likes to exercise? I know some people like to exercise. I personally, do you, do you like to exercise? You know, I wish, I hope my trainer's not listening to this, honestly, because uh, it's okay, Michael. I love to exercise with you, but you know, maybe I'm at the point now where sometimes I look forward to it, but, but I know that it's, I'm going to feel better at the end. And I know that in the long term, it's going to be better for me. So I have a routine and I do that routine religiously, despite the fact that I'm, you know, I'm not loving it in the moment. You know what I mean? But here's the thing, actually, this is really interesting. So just as an aside, and then I'll get back to the actually answering your question. You know, there was for a long time, I really did not like the sensation of having my heart beating hard in my chest. Like I really didn't like it. It was uncomfortable. But I did manage to change my predictions about what that meant. And I did it by focusing in on the feeling. Instead of trying to distract myself away from it, I actually sort of took my, you know, my spotlight of attention and and I focused, laser focused right on it. And an interesting thing happened, which I don't understand how it happened, but I don't think anyone understands how this happens, but it does happen where over time, it became pleasant. And now I actually try to cultivate that. It's a fine line, right? Like if I drive myself too hard in a row in some, you know, aerobic activity, I, I'll become nauseated from like all the lactic acid. So it's like a fine line. I've got to get to the point where I can feel my heart pounding in my chest, but I'm not really feeling it in my chest. I'm feeling it in my brain, but you know what I mean, but not too much or, you know, I risk having a unpleasant moment. And there are a lot of things like that. I mean, for example, for a long time, I was a coffee drinker. I was like a very, very dedicated coffee drinker. And the first couple of times I had coffee, I had to have like a shit ton of sugar in my coffee. Like it just like really did not taste very good. But over time, I stopped using sugar and I for years did not, you know, like now I that I can't drink coffee anymore really for a long time now. But oh my God, do I love the smell of it. I love the taste of it. So what happened? Something that became, you know, so this is actually what's in psychology is called reversal learning. <laughs> that you something that's unpleasant becomes very pleasant or something that's very pleasant can become very unpleasant. There are some theories about, you know, some ideas about how that works. But the point I think for us here is to understand that it does work and it is possible. And that's important. Because what it means is that some of the things that you dread, some of the experiences that you dread, if you feel like you're more in control of them, they don't have to feel so bad. And partly how you become in control of them is you focus in on them. You don't distract yourself away from them, even if there's something that you don't like. So for example, when I was recovering from surgery, I had back surgery. It was very serious back surgery. And one of the things I knew that I would have to do is in moments of great pain, I mean, really great pain. I would have to focus in on the pain, not distract myself away from it. And that reduces the intensity of the pain and makes it more manageable. And in fact, this is something that's used. Mindfulness meditation is to focus in on sensations is something that's used to reduce opioid dependence for people who experience chronic pain. And it works, right? If the data are to be believed. So how do you do it? Well, I think part of what you do is you prepare for the heat of the moment before the heat of the moment, right? Before the moment arises. So you start to prepare, you learn how to control your experience by focusing on, you know, practicing what you're focusing on in practicing how you're making meaning, learning new words, learning new concepts, learning to deploy those concepts very, very efficiently. So for example, I give in how emotions are made in the book is the experience of awe. So somebody down the hall from me, one of my friends, you know, good friends who studies positive emotions and how positive emotions are really good for you. And they have all kinds of benefits. And I'm just like inherently skeptical person. So I'm like, yeah, okay. And also, you know, I'm a bit of a curmudgeon. So like, I don't know that I believe this, but okay, that's what the data shows. So I'm going to try it. So every day I took five minutes and I tried to cultivate a moment of awe. And I started with easy things like the sky, you know, at night, the stars, the ocean, you know, a beautiful park, you know, easy things, easy things. And then I started to challenge myself a little harder, you know, so I'd do things that were harder. And eventually I got to things like an ugly weed 
poking its head through a broken sidewalk. And I would experience the breathlessness of awe, the expansiveness of awe at nature's, the power of nature to be unconstrained by humans' pathetic attempts to control it. And the interesting thing is that now I could be in the middle of the most stressful, you know, event where something really stressful is happening, like in a meeting or preparing for surgery or, you know, really stressful things. And I can just by shifting my attention a little bit to something else in the room or some, an experience, you know, or a sensation, I can for a moment experience awe. And the interesting thing about awe, at least for me, is that, and I think this is for most people, is that when you're experiencing a moment of awe, you are experiencing yourself as small and irrelevant (laughs) relative to something that is much more expansive and much more important than you. And that gives your nervous system a break for a second. You know, if you're small and insignificant, then your problems are small and insignificant just for a minute, you know, and sometimes that's a really good thing. So now, you know, for example, if I'm facing, I know I'm going to have a you know, a debate with someone that I'm really worried about it, or I feel that I'm going to be evaluated negatively in some way, and I'm really worried about it. I switch very, very quickly into a mode of other people's opinions are just electrical activity in their brains. And isn't it amazing that brains can do that? (laughs) And then I have a minute, you know, I got to have a minute of a break. I'm not saying that it's easy to cultivate for me now. It's not so easy to hold it. But, you know, that takes practice, right? And I can keep coming back to it. So there isn't one experience that I would say, cultivate, learn this experience and cultivate it for yourself. What I would do is I would, you know, think about the ones that would be useful for you and and then practice because then you can, you know, like for me, high arousal, unpleasant high arousal states are no longer de facto anxiety. Sometimes they're states of uncertainty, right? In moments where, you know, where I could just collapse under the weight of anxiety. Instead, I experience uncertainty. I'm not just like tricking yourself. You're not just rationalizing things. You're not just telling yourself, well, I mean, you are telling yourself a story, but everything you experience is telling yourself a story. So, you know, you're really authentically experiencing something different. And that I think holds the key to having more control over your life. Yeah, as you were sharing, I keep thinking about, I literally have just gone through probably the toughest 12 months of my life that I can remember. My dad passed away a year ago, just a few days ago. I wrecked myself on my dirt bike and I'm recovering from ACL meniscus surgery. My stepdad was life flighted to the hospital in a coma with pneumonia. You know, like it was just like a few family members along the way passed away unexpectedly. Sorry. Tragic accidents. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, but at the same, you know, it's really interesting because while I experienced grief and like there would be these waves of it, I've kind of learned the skill along the way. I'm calling it a skill. I don't know where like I've learned to like lean into the suck, right? Like it's this idea of like all life is suffering and it's just my job not to make it worse. And so I started a few years ago, probably in the last decade, like kind of playing this game with myself, almost like what is going awaiting for me today kind of deal. Like as soon as my feet hit the floor, what am I going to encounter? It's And it's always framed as an adventure now, instead of what terrible thing is going to happen. It's more like, oh yeah, well, what hurdle do I get to see if I can overcome today kind of deal. And as you were sharing, you know, this idea of like changing those predictions or or just predicting differently, I'm almost wondering if that's what I've done a bit. Yeah, in my exactly. Life. You're just, tell, your brain is just basically, you're, you know, brain is always talking to itself. That's what yes. predictions are. It's talking to itself about what's likely going to happen next. And sometimes those predictions create our thoughts and sometimes they create emotions and sometimes it's the same process, but you know, how we experience that the features of experience are what vary from instance to instance. And that's exactly what you've done. And I think the thing is that every person, even the happiest, the person who looks happiest and looks like they have no problems and have nothing to worry about, every person feels encumbered by something and you often don't know what it is. And so you assume 
that somebody else doesn't have it as hard as you, but everybody has hurdles. Everybody has difficulties. If you looked at me, you wouldn't know that I have three chronic illnesses, but I do. And I have to manage them. And do I feel sorry for myself? Yeah, sometimes I do. And sometimes I let myself, I cultivate a space where I can do that. But that doesn't mean that I'm, you know, free to give up. And, you know, one of the things I said in my TED talk, because it was really important, I, it's really important that people understand this, is that, you know, when something bad happens to you in your life, everybody has bad things happen to them. And sometimes they're catastrophically bad things. You feel victimized twice, I think. The first time you feel victimized because something bad happened to you and it's not your fault. You didn't ask for it. And now you're left with all this shit that you've got to clean up. And it's not even your fault that you have this shit, but you have to clean it up, which is also really unfair. And it is really unfair. But the thing is, if you don't, who's gonna? This is the thing. If there are things that you need to change in your life, the fact that you have a little more control than you think you do means you also have a little more responsibility than you think you do. And that doesn't mean that you're culpable for what happened, but it does mean that you're responsible for cleaning up the shit. And the minute that you accept that, it's unfair, but if you don't do it, sometimes we're responsible for things because we're the only ones who can change those things. And once you accept that, then it feels a little freeing, you know? You're buying yourself a little bit of freedom by taking on, by accepting a little more responsibility for yourself. There's a Navy SEAL, Jocko Willink, and he wrote a book, Extreme Ownership. And he talks about this. He was part of the team that went in and they they were the ones who found Bin Laden. Ah. And right. And so he, he talks a lot about this idea of like mental toughness and extreme ownership. And I don't know that he has any research behind it, but it sounds like what you're saying really backs up this idea of like, when we own it, it actually makes it less painful. Just like when we focus on the pain, it makes it less painful. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, you know, I would say a lot of the treatments that are around, you know, for treating eating disorders, for treating addiction, for treating depression, anxiety, a lot of these treatments work, but they don't work for the reasons that people think they work. So I think a really good one is cognitive behavioral therapy. There's a lot of evidence that cognitive behavioral therapy works, but it's not working because if you think differently, then you feel differently. That's not how it works at all. First of all, it's not really about thinking, it's about doing, okay? That's the first thing. It's like not in your head. It's actually, you know, your predictions are preparing you to do something. And then that the preparations to do actually is what constructs your experience. But if you're metabolically encumbered, for example, you're just going to feel like shit. And then your brain is going to attempt to explain, to predict and explain, why are you feeling like shit? So in a sense, it's really your feelings that are driving your thoughts, not the other way around. And your feelings in one moment are leading to predictions, right? That are creating your thoughts in the next moment, in a sense. So once you understand that, you understand that when you are feeling one way and you change what you do, you're actually giving your brain the opportunity to learn that there's more than one option. There's more flexibility now, right? So instead of when I'm feeling exhausted, the thing everybody loves, right? It's like, if you're feeling exhausted, you just don't want to get out of bed in the morning, right? But there are other options. There are other options, maybe even make you feel a little better. And once you pr try those out, you still think you're foraging for information. You're trying you know, that's what little homework prescriptions are, right? You're just trying out other options so that you're broadening your repertoire so that your brain has more flexibility to predict. And then you can hone particular patterns by practicing them more and making them easier to predict or easier to implement. And the thing is that, you know, it's just like driving, right? Like the more you practice something, the more automated it becomes. So it's not so hard eventually to get out of bed when you're feeling like shit. And what you do is you might go straight outside and go for a walk, right? Or you might go straight to the kitchen and, you know, have a cup of tea. <laughs> or you might drink a glass of water before you, you know, start your day or, or whatever. But my point is that there are lots of little tweaks that you can use to change the trajectory of where your brain is going with its predictions.
Yeah. I loved earlier when you were talking about, you were taking all these like moments to adjust your metabolic energy. And we would call those like maybe self-care moments in the work that we do five minutes of breathing, five minutes of outside, all of these things to like rejuvenate yourself. What I'm just wondering is like Molly and I were chatting just before this and we said it's so interesting, like every treatment modality is based on the other theory of emotion, what we're taught in school, how we work with clients. You know, you look at dialectical behavior therapy, it's wise mind, emotion mind, or, you know, somatic experiencing, right? Where you're tuning into body. But again, it's like, these are all things interpreted by our brain. So is there a treatment modality that suits best your theory of constructed emotions? You know, I think, you know, a lot of people have asked me this question and I think, you know, it's it's a great opportunity for any clinician to take this up, right? So this is like out of my wheelhouse these days for a long time. But what I would say is, no, what I would do is, or what I do is I'm constantly translating what's available into the language of this theory. Because like I said, you know, trauma-informed care works not because you have a lizard brain that hijacks the rest of your brain when it's triggered, okay? Like that's wrong. That's just wrong. And you know what? Your body doesn't keep the score, okay? Your brain keeps the score. Your body is the scorecard. But still, trauma-informed care works but it doesn't work for the reasons that other people are claiming. So part of what I do and how emotions are made is talk a little bit about why I think they work, right? And then I think you can use those treatments a little better than you would otherwise. I think the thing to understand is that your predictions don't distort reality. They are your reality. If you didn't have predictions, you would be experientially blind to everything that happens in the world and in your own body. That means it would just be noise to you, that you don't have a reality without predictions. So predictions are not distorting reality and then you have to, you know, overcome that with, you know, cognitive means or whatever. No, you have to change your predictions because that changes your reality, like really changes your reality for real. Amazing. Well, it has definitely been an eye-opening hour for me and I'm sure for Clarissa too. And I just so appreciate the work that you've done. I had the opportunity to read your first book, but not your second book yet, though I am aware of it. In fact, I told Clarissa, I was like, oh my gosh, there's a second book. I don't know how to get through a second book in such a short amount of time, but it's definitely on my Libby list. So I'm going to get to read that soon. Thanks. thanks. So before you go, before Mm -hmm. you go, we always want to know what's next for you. And then we have a signature question. So what's next for you? Well, I'm doing a couple of things. You know, I answer this question kind of differently every six months because I'm working on something and then I become fascinated by something else. But what's new? What's next for me? I think I want to write a book. The title is going to be something like, you don't fucking need a self-help book. Or maybe this isn't a fucking, this isn't a fucking self-help book. But what you need are a set of tools for living, but you don't need help, right? There's nothing wrong with you. I mean, maybe you have some things you want to tweak. Maybe there are some things you're doing that are not productive, but you don't need help. You know, you need tools. So I'm going to eventually do that. I don't know when. I also, though, I think tools come in interesting places. So that's how I think about science. That's really why I got into this business of communicating. You know, I never wanted to be out of my lab. I'm really happy being a scientist in my lab. I never had any desire to communicate to the public. I didn't think I would be very good at it and it wasn't really of interest to me, but I felt a calling to do it after realizing that people's, I mean, it was a slow process for me, but I realized that people misunderstand the nature of emotion and that this causes unbelievable amounts of suffering. And sometimes people even lose their lives because they or someone that who was treating them making decisions about them, use the wrong theory. And that's not an exaggeration. That's actually true. So I think another place where there are tools, and this is going to sound, I'm going to use the P word now, which is philosophy. But philosophy, before science, philosophy was, you know, a set of tools for living. 
And there are ways that we think about, you know, for example, this idea that predictions don't bias your, you know, they don't bias your view or distort your view of reality. They create your reality. This is a very profound idea. And if you really understand, I mean, some people are probably thinking, what the hell is she talking about? Like, you know, like you should, what, like everything is imaginary in your head. No, I'm not saying that at all. It and makes that's me the whole think point. of the allegory of the cave, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, oh, right. But yeah. the allegory of the cave, it turns out, is the problem. I mean, I, I have to say, so the thing that, and we're talking about Plato's allegory here, but so that's my point. My point is that if I can get people to really understand this, like really understand it easily and, you know, it's just a couple of sentences, it can transform somebody's life. So I'm hoping that I might figure out how to do that. The thing I really want to do other than my, you know, this isn't a fucking self-help book is I want to write books for kids. I think it would be really helpful if I could figure out a way. I already have a couple of ideas for kids books, but if I could figure out a way to, to boil down some of these messages for little brains, you know, I haven't quite figured out the best way. Some of these ideas are even so complicated that it's hard for adults to understand them, but that's something I'm going to be thinking about. Amazing. Well, I look forward to all of those books <laughs> for sure. Okay. So before you go, we have a signature question. So for you, we would like to ask if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about emotions, what would you say? I would say, well, to my professional self, I would say, don't worry. You will figure it out. You will, but you just have to keep being curious. And I would also say everyone's negative evaluation of you is just electrical activity in their head. It doesn't mean you're wrong. Like have confidence in yourself. I think I would have very much appreciated that. But, you know, one of my colleagues, when I started studying emotion, told me, you know, I think you're going to revolutionize. He's a man, right? And up to this point, mostly only men were studying emotion. And he said, you know, I think you're really going to revolutionize the field of emotion because you have them. <laughs> now, I'm not talking about all men, but I mean, this guy was pretty detached from his, from his feelings. But I think that, you know, I am the kind of person who my husband has like a nervous system of Teflon, right? So he, he floats in a sea of tranquility and I kind of thrash around treading water, you know, in a tumultuous sea, basically, of like storm. Like that's my life. And I think I would have told myself that pay attention, like pay attention, because you never know what's going to give you the next best idea. Like your own experience doesn't prove anything in science. It, it proves nothing. You can never use your own experience. Like we've been talking here about anecdotes and things like that, right? But, you know, Every time I say to you, well, here's my best understanding, and then I give you an anecdote, really what I'm doing is I'm translating a set of empirical findings in studies that are peer-reviewed and published into, an, you know, illustrating them with an anecdote. But I think we, now we're sort of back to the beginning where we started, right? Which is like, where do ideas come from? And ideas don't come from the hand of God. It's not like God reaches down and touches your brain and then poof, you know, you have an idea. You can have ideas ideas can come to you in the strangest places. And sometimes when you look at your own experiences carefully, now they're just ideas and they have to be tested. You know, they have to be put through the rigors of empirical testing, but still often in science, progress is not answering questions. It's asking better questions. Thank you so much, Lisa. I actually get my best ideas while working out, if that helps. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There there you, go. you know what? The, <laughs> my best ideas honestly come from two weeks a year. We go to the beach. My husband confiscates all of my electronics and locks mm. them up. And wouldn't you know it, like after my brain has unseized for about two days, I'm like, oh, having all these ideas. And I, of course, I, there's nothing I can do about it because all my electronics, I mean, I can just yeah. use the, You'd have to you know, get out my papyrus. Yeah. My papyrus <laughs> and my read or whatever. Yeah. So. Awesome. Um, Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar-Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. 
You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.